This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. And our, I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center. And I have two uh, very good friends and distinguished guests today to discuss our topic, which is the difference between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, and to look a little bit at the history of the development of the church and how to think about that. And on my left is Michael Spiegel, who teaches in the Historical Theology Department. They keep changing the names on mm-hmm. us, and so, you know, it used to be systematics, but now you've involved to a historical theological level. Theological studies now. So it's yeah. really theological studies. See, I, I still don't get it right. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then Scott Harrell, who, um, who's been here on campus. How long have you been teaching 18 here? Years 18 now. years Eighteen yes. years. Yeah, you're, you're – yeah, pushing pushing two decades. That's pretty serious. Serious for sure. So uh, both professors in theological studies and uh, and uh, really, uh, I think we're going to have an enjoyable time discussing this. So we'll just dive in um, as we think about the church. Probably the first question people might have is: Explain to me why we speak of. Catholicism or Catholicity, if I can say it that way. If you read the old creeds, you'll see the phrase Catholicity, which is a word everybody uses every day. <laughs> and then, uh, and then you've got uh, Roman Catholicism, and you've got Protestantism. How? Where did where did all that come from? What's what's the starting point for thinking about that? That okay. sounds like a history question. It is. It's a history so, question. Uh, yeah, the, the term Catholic is first year used in the early second century. Ignatius of Antioch uses it. Um, to describe the church as a whole, mm-hmm. as opposed to a local congregation. So Catholic means according to the whole. So as you think of Christianity, uh, from east to west, north to, north to south, all holding to the same basic Trinitarian confession of faith, he uses the term Catholic. Mm-hmm. And Christ himself is the head of the Catholic Church in that sense. Uh, eventually then you dis- they start discussing uh, uh, the Catholic Church of Alexandria, the Catholic Church of Antioch, the Catholic Church of Rome, indicating that we're all part of this fraternity of bishops who are all preaching the same thing, teaching the same things. And that continues on for a couple centuries. Eventually you get the Roman Catholic Church, which ultimately is responsible for the most part planting the churches in the West, the Latin West. It becomes perceived as the mother church of the West, and the Eastern Church also today called the Orthodox Church, uh, had several of these cities uh, with churches planted by apostles. Interestingly, you had one church in the West, in Rome, planted by the apostles, Mm -hmm. responsible for most of the missions in the West, and that does something to you. They have this perceived uh, prime authority in the Western Church, and you start to see East and West slowly drift. This is where you start to see this distinct Roman Catholic tradition 
versus the more diverse uh, Eastern Catholic or Orthodox tradition developing. So in some senses, people think there are two groups, but there really are three, if you want to think of it that way. There's the Orthodox or the Eastern Church, mm. the Roman Catholic, which was the predominantly the Western Church until the Reformation, and then you had those Protestants, those yes. protesters, they're a real problem. Uh, Scott, where, where do the Protestants come in? Well, we come out of the 16th century, and we do build on a lot of the truths that the Church held until then. Uh, I think we, we have a fourth element, and those are called the Oriental Orthodox. Okay. And when we get to about 800, mm -hmm. the Bishop Timothy, or Metropolitan Patriarch Timothy over the Nestorian Church alone, had as many under his domain as Rome had under theirs. We forget about the East, mm -hmm. which went all the way to Beijing, to central China, to the Ganges River, to mm -hmm. Nepal, Tibet, through Mongolia, uh, all the way back to uh, Babylon and further west from there. So there's all of this, but the Protestants, uh, we began with Luther's nailing the theses to the Wittenberg door mm -hmm. uh, by declaring, though there are forerunners from that, but by declaring we're returning to Scripture and there are certain truths there that we affirm that we feel the Roman Catholic Church has walked away from. Okay, so that produced the the uh, one of the great divides in the, in the in the history of the church. The other one being the schism between east and west. Where does that where does that fit in? Where, I know we're jumping around on the sure. calendar here on the chronology, but yeah, you have the as uh, Dr. Harrell mentioned, you have the Nestorian uh, break in by the fifth century that's accomplished. And then you have the the break between east and west when the um, Patriarch of Constantinople. And the Bishop of Rome basically condemn each other, anathematize each other. Uh, that occurred in 1054, and it was over a Roman uh, addition to the creed, which, according to orthodoxy, cannot be changed. And so to this day, those two branches, uh, east and west, are divided um, and with no hope of reconciliation in sight at this point. And, and, and the idea of Roman Catholicism, of course, is the point that Rome is seen as the um, what, what the hub city, if you will, or the, the uh, first among equals is the way that the Pope, technically speaking, sits over Rome, but Rome is seen as the first among equals in the various um, cities and parishes that make up the Catholic Church, and that's why it's called Roman Catholicism. I that's that correct. basically correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so that kind of gets the basics out on the table in terms of, uh, of what we're dealing with. So the idea of, of Catholicity is actually old and predates the Roman sure. Catholic yep. Church. And it's an attempt to affirm the essential unity that exists in belief in Christ and in the Trinitarian faith. Um, and if we were to look for creeds that reflect this early, if I can say, pre-Roman Catholic mm. orthodoxy, where would we find those kinds of statements? Yeah, sure. So already in the second century you have um, these summaries of the faith that are uh, usually used at baptism or instruction of new believers. They vary in the language from place to place, but are essentially saying the same thing. When you get into the uh, Arian controversy in the fourth century, uh, you see at the Council of Nicaea, many scholars think they basically took a baptismal confession and just added a few clarifying points. And everybody, all the bishops east and west agreed to this, and this represents uh, this Catholic faith in a creed form. You also see the definition of Chalcedon in 451, another uh, agreement on the person of Christ, 
being uh, two natures in one person. Mm -hmm. uh, this is another creed that is a confession that's shared East and West and by Protestants as well. So there's a lot uh, at the fundamental level, the definition of Catholicity, uh, that Protestants, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox all share in common. Now, um, now where does the Apostles, what's called the mm -hmm. Apostles' Creed, where does it fit in this mix? Yeah, that was probably based on a second century baptismal formula used in Rome mm -hmm. uh, as a, a question and response form of baptism. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker in heaven, of heaven and earth? I do, and then there would be an immersion or pouring. Sounds like a wedding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I do. I do. I do confess this. Yeah. And so there's this threefold confession, uh -huh. and uh, those baptismal confessions is probably what contributes to the Apostles' Creed, which also is adopted by, by Western okay. Protestants. Okay. Now, that kind of gives us an overview. Let's, let's take a look at some of the distinctives that, that mark out the difference between, and we're really focused here on the difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants. And I think probably a place to start is just how, get, how theology gets done, if I can say it that way. In other words, the role of Scripture versus the role of an entity that Protestants don't talk about but the Catholics do, the magisterium. What, what, what's going on in, in that conversation, Scott? Sure, I'll pick that up. Uh, for Roman Catholicism, increasingly from especially Gregory the Great, I think around 600 on, there was a, a, a there had been before, but a body of, uh, of leaders that would say, this is what the scriptures actually say, and they're drawing also from the traditions of the faith at that point. So Roman Catholicism very clearly declares that scripture, the written word, and tradition, the spoken word, uh, when dogmatized by the magisterium, made absolute doctrine, they walk together through history, and that magisterium and that great tradition uh, grows with time as uh, the, the, the counsel of those determining doctrine say this is what the text means, and when they do declare certain theology as doctrine or dogma, that becomes binding and irrevocable. So tradition and magisterium, or the tradition as defined by the magisterium and scripture are said to walk together through history. Okay, who makes up the magisterium? Well, those uh, today are uh, a council of cardinals, basically, aren't they, Mike? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, uh, with the pope at the head. Yes. He's, he's the essential um, uh, center of that magisterium. So Pope Down, he, de he declares, in fact, who makes a part of that, who, who constitutes that magisterium, and they are uh, with the Roman Catholic Church, you see this kind of evolution of doctrine through the centuries, mm -hmm. which the Protestants uh, reacted against. Mm -hmm. And so the Protestant teaching of sola scriptura is said to be in, in contrast to that, and of course that's the idea that Scripture itself is the source of doctrine, and, and there, for Protestants, at least theoretically, there is no magisterium to function Correct. to make these kinds of judgments. Yeah, barring the creeds, and it's not a, a council of right. uh, a magisterium, no. Yeah. So that. that that certainly yeah. is one major difference. And so that actually impacts the way you do theology, because on the one hand, Protestants tend to engage with the Scripture, this is what Scripture teaches, this is where doctrine comes from, whereas in the Roman Catholicism approach, you've got not only the, the, the Scripture, but then you've got this large tradition that develops, although I must say as an aside that in some Protestant uh, discussions of theology, when you read them, 
uh, I think particularly here oftentimes the Reformed tradition, you've got this long history of, of creedal discussion that's taken place since the Protestant yes. Reformation mm-hmm. in which you do get a lot of references to various kinds of confessions or catechism catechesis or whatever that uh, that looks like it functions very much like a magisterium might. Am I am I misreading that? Yeah, and that or? has been some complaints uh, since the Reformation of kind of a, a reaction within Protestantism against this new uh, magisterium in the form of these confessions. The Westminster Confession ha- had particularly come under attack in the 19th uh, and 20th centuries by some evangelicals. Uh, but if you ask a, a Westminster Reformed theologian, none of them would say the Westminster Confession is infallible, mm-hmm. is the Spirit speaking through the Westminster divines. They would say, we believe this is the in, an accurate interpretation of Scripture, but they would never raise it up to the same level as And there's uh, the difference. And there really. is the difference, yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And so, in fact, the, com- the Protestant confessions are said to appeal to the Scripture for the content that they have, whereas in the context of Catholic doctrine, you get, I think, the recognition and, the, and really the admission that the way we do theology includes the magisterium as a part of, the pro- as a, part of a recognized process in which the Spirit is said to speak. The magisterium really becomes a controlling factor of interpreting the Scripture. Mm-hmm. So when you say that Mary was born without sin, not even a sin nature, mm-hmm. and finally ascended into heaven, which is official Roman Catholic dogma, that's irrevocable. That is, uh, that's doctrine of the Church that cannot be changed in Roman Catholicism. And one of the interesting things about that particular doctrine, in, in that particular doctrine is that it actually was, um, I don't know, Sanctioned. I don't know what the proper word is. Um, what in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth? Oh, the ascension, bodily ascension, was I think the last papal decree of absolute binding doctrine, 1950, 1951. So that late, okay. Yeah. Then. Uh, uh, and then the what immaculate conception? I that think that goes back further. What to 14th century, 13th yeah. century? Yeah. Mike. And so these are. This is a great example of doctrines that really have no basis in Scripture. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, there is no passage of Scripture you can go to that would even. This isn't really a matter of interpretation of Scripture. This is an extension new, of theology. An extension of theology. Yeah. So, but the idea is that just as the Spirit spoke infallibly through the apostles and prophets, and we have that in the Scriptures, the Spirit is continuing yes. to grant apostolic authority to the Church through the magisterium. Mm-hmm. And so when there is this ex cathedra from the seat of authority proclamation, it is uh, the same Holy Spirit speaking infallibly through the Church. And so both of these then become mm-hmm. uh, norming authorities that, uh, that must be read together in the process of doing so theology. So I think it would be fair to say this is a pretty significant difference that we're mm-hmm. talking about in terms of how to do theology, that the whole Absolutely. orientation of what counts for doing theology is, uh, is pretty important, and whether you work exclusively with Scripture, whether Scripture and tradition get put together in some way that, that then builds your theology, that, that's, that's difference number one, if I can mm-hmm. say it that way. Mm-hmm. Let's turn our attention to another category that is probably the most obvious difference, if I can say it that way, people are immediately aware of, and that is the, that is the figure of the Pope. Um, uh, although we sometimes joke about a Protestant pope, I'm not sure we've ever had one. We certainly never had smoke coming out of a chimney to indicate who this uh, figure is. Um, but the pope has been an important part of the Roman Catholic Church for quite some time, although 
I think it would be fair to say you can't go all the way back to the beginning to find the Pope, although I've walked into the church, I think it's St. Paul in, sure. in Rome, where it starts with Peter and goes through everybody coming all the way up. Well, today it would be Francis when I was visiting there. Uh, it was Benedict. But anyway, um, uh, and so uh, what's the history of the office of the Pope? And I'm introducing this with an awareness. My son went to a Roman Catholic college. He went to St. John's in New York. In, in their religion class, they had a class on the church, and they read a book by Hans Kuhn on mm. the history and development of the papacy in which Kuhn was complaining about the role of the pope in the Catholic Church as a Catholic. That was, it was actually fascinating reading. I read this book with him when he had the class. Mm. And so, um, so most people aren't aware of any of that. So, um, so tell us, where's the pope come from? Sure. Uh, I'll take that, and then okay. um, Dr. Hill can chime in if he wants. Uh, it is an acknowledged fact by respectable and responsible Roman Catholic historians and scholars that the papacy is a development. Mm -hmm. um, the, the facts uh, uh, of history are on the Protestant side there. Uh, the issue now, though, is is this a development that is divinely sanctioned, mm -hmm. or is this something that is merely a, a convenience or a contrivance? So uh, really, the days of Roman Catholic saying Peter was the first pope and the papacy has been as it is all the way through uh, are more or less over. However, at the popular level, and in, in much of the many of the members of the hierarchy, there's still this narrative that says Peter was the first pope and and it's the, been this unbroken succession. What what you can see very early on. Uh, at least by the second century, is in the church in Rome, you have a plurality of, of your elders or presbyters and a presiding elder, someone who's sort of the, the, the prime among equals in mm -hmm. the leadership, who eventually gets his own title of bishop and eventually, as time progresses, develops into this, um, this, this pope figure. Pope, pope simply means father, mm -hmm. papa. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's where it develops. But uh, So you may have a, a primary leader in that particular local church in Rome, but this idea of that leader becoming the bishop first of all of the Latin-speaking West and then of all of the whole church, East and West, is a gradual development through the centuries. And, and you start to see that really emerge in a serious kind of way, or at least claims that work in that way, what, in the 5th century or so? Are we talking about that later or earlier? General, yeah, it, it's a gradual process, yeah. but generally Protestants are going to look back and say um, Pope Gregory the First, mm -hmm. Gregory the Great, right around 600, okay. uh, is going to be a an emergence of uh, somebody who really looks like a pope is going to look in the medieval period. Okay. So, um, and the other interesting thing that's in the backdrop is we do have evidence earlier in the church of localities kind of uh, pushing against one another mm -hmm. in terms of church issues. The one that I'm aware of is Corinth uh, interacting with Rome uh, on certain issues where Rome is trying to assert its authority over Corinth, and Corinth pushes back and says, no, 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 mm -hmm. this is our area. You don't have the right to do this. Sure. Yeah, yeah and you have that classic example example is Polycarp of Smyrna and the Bishop of Rome over what, what time of the year or what week of the season do we celebrate uh, Pascha or Easter. Mm -hmm. And that was a difference of tradition and the, the tendency of the Roman church was to create unity through uniformity mm -hmm. and that seems like they just couldn't 
handle having people doing things differently than them, especially mm -hmm. in their own jurisdiction. Whereas the East tended to be, you know, we're united on the essentials, but there's room for diversity of opinion and practice on lesser things. And so you see this constant conflict when one wants to do things one way and everybody should be the same versus those who say, look, there's room for diversity here. And that's always been this historical conflict between East and West. So, so the idea uh, of the Pope is kind of this second area of difference. Protestantism really now that doesn't have that. In in one sense, at a practical level, you can see the difference. I mean, there is this symbolic central figure who speaks, who, who's seen to speak for the Catholic Church in a way that's actually, from a strictly marketing perspective, I can say it that way, branding perspective, pretty powerful. And Protestants <laughs> don't have anything like that. In fact, yeah. they have, in contrast, sometimes a chaos going mm. on, uh, which Catholics, in pushing against Protestants, will say, see, we've got our, we're much more organized in some ways yeah, than, you, than you We are. have one pope, you have a million popes. Yeah, 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 everybody yeah. thinks that they're in charge. They are the pope, yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's an interesting contrast. Well, let's talk about a third area, see if we can squeeze it in before the may, break. May I yeah, get one yeah, more sure. point in there? Yeah. Papal infallibility, the idea that when the pope speaks ex cathedra from the throne declaring doctrine, mm -hmm. that is a doctrine only from Vatican I, 1870. So it okay. goes back a little over 100 years. Yes. I mean, I, I think it's – I think the fascinating thing about this discussion, just from observing it from a historical point of view, is to see, you know, this is theology in development in the Roman Catholic Absolutely. Church. And, and you can see it, and there are places – you know, this is the teaching of the church, but it's the recent teaching of the church. Sure. Uh, you can mm -hmm. see it build, you know, much like a volcano, you know, builds and then eventually it erupts and becomes obvious. You know, you can see the movement moving in a certain direction, but it actually doesn't become declared and official until some of these statements Correct. come out. Mm -hmm. And some of them are very, very light and often in reaction to things that are going on in larger Christendom that, that compel the church yeah. to be responsive. Some people yes. have described the Roman Catholic Church as a reactive um, entity mm -hmm. in many ways. And I think you see that. And of course, the history of, of councils and conferences usually is reacting to something that's going on that needs a statement. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily a negative thing. It, it's, it's part of doing the discerning work of the church. But, but it's there and it's obvious and it's a part of, uh, of what, what is often happening. So I, I think this is a fascinating part of the church that most people are very unaware of. Yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Well, um, so so we've talked about two major differences. We've talked about um, we've talked about the magisterium, and we've talked about the role of the pope. Um, a third area I was going to try and squeeze in before the break, but there's no way we're going to be able to get away with this. Uh, but a third area to talk about is the role. Uh, another very w uh, difference people are well aware of is the role of Mary, mm -hmm. and and which is actually an extension of 
what I would consider to be Roman Catholic ecclesiology, how ecclesiology works in the Roman Catholic Church and how that extends. So what I want to do on the other side of the break is to come back and talk about those elements. What, how does the church see itself as a mediator, if I can say it that way, mm-hmm. between the believer and God in contrast to the uh, Protestant church? And what role does a figure like Mary play, who's very, very prominent? I mean, it's not just Mary alone, it's saints, etc. What kind of role? That seems to me to be a third difference, and it's one that people are transparently aware of as they interact uh, with with um, the public perception of what Roman Catholicism is. We're slowly but surely moving to what may be one of the more important differences, uh, and that is the way in which the church is placed in reference to both believer and God and also how the church functions in the world in Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic thinking. Um, Scott, how does that how does that work? How does that dif- what's the difference there between Roman Catholics and Protestants? Well, the Catholic Church really does see itself as kind of this holding bin or repository of what we call saving grace. It is through the church that people are saved. And so it's through the sacraments, but by vesture of Peter being the first pope allegedly mm-hmm. and the apostolic succession, the church is seen as that as that entity in the world that distributes God's saving grace to believers and even more broadly than that in one sense since Vatican II. So it is only through the church and really the sacraments of the church that are primary in terms of one's salvation. So the symbolism that's often associated with this is the idea that the church holds the keys to the kingdom, if I can mm-hmm. say it that way. Um, and, and so basically the sacraments are seen as as those elements uh, uh, of the distribution of grace. Now, I can see a Protestant listening to this and going, whoa, 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 whoa I thought it comes through Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did that, how'd that happen? Um, sure. And so, um, so what, I mean, one, how does a Catholic explain that? And then two, uh, what exactly is going on here in terms of the way this is seen? Yeah, so that's exactly right. The Scripture, a Protestant, a good Protestant is going to go straight to there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and they'll say, well, how can you have the church mediating uh, salvation when Christ is the mediator? It's a good point. Mm-hmm. The response would be, well, the church is the body of Christ, the extension of uh, Christ and the incarnation into the world, and it mediates the body and blood of Christ through the sacrament of the Eucharist. And so they're not seeing a difference. Christ, yes, is the mediator, but he chooses to mediate through the church. Peter is the vicar or the stand-in for Christ. Uh, Christ himself gave the keys uh, metaphorically to Peter to open and shut the gate to heaven. And this is this idea, as Scott mentioned, uh, the church has this uh, infinite uh, deposit of grace purchased by Christ through his, his death. And it then dispenses it as it sees fit through the various sacraments. Uh, And some people, some saints like Mary or some of the other saints that you would see pictures or statues of, uh, are through their merits by grace have have an overflowing abundance of grace. Mm -hmm. And so Mary, you know, in the in the song uh, "Hail Mary, Full of Grace," mm-hmm. we know in Scripture that means uh, she is a, a specially favored a recipient well, she's of God's being grace. Gre- greeted as Gre- a recipient. Greeted exactly. As a recipient they will take that uh, plena gratia as she's 
so full of grace, she's overflowing with it and has extra grace for those who come to her. And other saints as well. And other yes. saints as well. So she's overflowing with grace. Mm-hmm. So that's where the Mary part of this, mm-hmm. which people are most probably aware of as an extension of what this is teaching, comes in. She's seen as a as someone to whom we can appeal. Yet another picture of a physical mediator. You know, there's an, in the old way that Mass was done. Um, uh, and it's still done in some forms of Roman Catholicism. This was pictured by the fact that uh, parishioners would take one element of the Lord's table, but then the the priest would end up taking the other element and not offer it to the parishioner as a way of picturing this mediation. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah, yeah. The, so the priest himself was standing in representing mm-hmm. the congregation in the reception. The, only the priest for many, many centuries would receive the wine mm-hmm. part of the Eucharist. And the, the theology of that was, well, if Christ is physically, his, his humanity and divinity is fully, really present in the bread and the wine, uh, just taking one, you're getting the fullness of Christ. You don't necessarily mm-hmm. need the second one. So mm-hmm. there's that theology driving that practice. Yeah, there's a reality to this what we call sacramentalism that might surprise many who are evangelicals listening. That is that it's the very element itself, as Mike as well said, whether the bread or the wine or the baptism. Prior to that, that's the first sacrament, really. Mm-hmm. But it is by vesture of the church doing it, irrespective of whether the priest himself is walking with God, mm-hmm. or for that matter, though it should be done in faith, mm-hmm. but the sacrament has saving value in itself, mm-hmm. and that's really powerful. And so the sacrament in a Roman Catholic view is is a direct – it gives direct access to grace in a way that in Protestantism does not take place. That's right. Correct. Uh, it's, it's more – uh, symbolic may be too soft a word because that only represents some of Protestant tradition, but mm-hmm. but um, but in Protestant belief, the idea of the presence of faith or something like that actualizes the grace, if I can say it that way, or or generates the benefit, and then the the right pictures that exchange as opposed to being directly involved. Um, there's an interesting element here. We probably should go through this as, as we think through, the say, the, what we call the Lord's Supper. The different ways in which that's seen, you know, there's, there's a, what, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, the memorial view, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's quickly go through the different ways that the, the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is seen, uh, both within Roman Catholicism on the one hand and then the various forms of Protestant expression on the other, because that gets at this, I think, in many ways. Yeah, in the Roman Catholic Church, the official dogma from about the middle of the, the medieval period on has been transubstantiation. That is, and there's a lot of there's a lot of philosophy and Aristotelianism going on here. But in essence, uh, when you are taking in, in ingesting the bread or the bread and the wine, you are ingesting uh, in its invisible essence the real physical body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And that immortalized reality of Christ's resurrection glorified body is going to infuse in you, it's going to transform you in some way and enable you to to live the Christian life in some sense and and impart to you life. Um, In the Protestant tradition, we 
don't have a transubstantiation doctrine. The closest you would get would be Martin Luther's consubstantiation, which says you're actually eating the bread and the wine, but with that, attached to that by God's grace, you are receiving also yeah, this. I call it the over, under, yeah, around, and, a, and it, through exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> In and through and with. It's a little, it's a little tricky, yeah. but yeah. for the most part, um, the Protestant doctrine of the Lord's Supper is going to range from a – this is a symbol of a reality, uh, a means of devotion, to a uh, we are receiving this from – as if from Christ's hands and it is imparting to us some spiritual blessing and Christ is present as the host of the meal, not in the, the way. So the range is we've got you know a strictly memorial view where we're basically recalling and uh, memorializing and mm. honoring what it is that and God has done for yeah. picturing mm. what God has done for us. All the way over to there's some something spiritual happening here, but it's not in the elements itself. Um, uh, you mean um, among evangelicals? Yeah, among evangelicals. Generally, yeah. Uh, yeah. with the exception of the Lutheran, which which does yeah. say there's something physical going on there, but it's more of a mystery. Okay, so so th again, this is another significant difference. You know, it used to always uh, baffle me. I think would be the word why it is the Catholics felt the responsibility to have a daily mass. Hmm. But you know, if you hmm. think about what it is that's taking place in the mass, because the mass is built around this. This uh, is really built around the table. Um, uh, when you think about what's going on in the Mass and this idea that grace somehow gets communicated to you through this rite, the idea of, if I can use a picture, plugging in every day mm -hmm. um, to get uh, more grace, if I can say it that way, um, makes more sense when you, when you think through what the theology is saying. I mean, it makes, it makes sense to draw on grace that's available to you in this way. I'm not saying that's right or it's biblical, but I'm simply saying uh, it, it's yeah, it consistent. Sense, it's it? a consistent yeah. kind of way of thinking about how grace can work. But it's very contrastive to the Protestant picture, which says that once you experience the grace of God, you are a member of this community, you know, and, and there's something there's something uh, permanent about what Christ has done. What Christ has done is once and for all in a way that uh, the, the repeating of the Mass and the distribution mm -hmm. of grace seems to work against. Is that a – Well, I would say there's a, there's a flip side to this in Catholicism as well. Okay. Uh, you know, I lived in Brazil for right. many years. Many are simply baptized into the church, that first, that first sacrament. Mm -hmm. Maybe a few will take a first – the first Eucharist, mm -hmm. the Lord's Supper, and apart from that, they don't care. That has those two acts of the sacraments in their lives, they, they, the Catholic Church would affirm, is sufficient already for their eternal salvation. Hmm. Even though they may not believe much else, that's the safeguard that keeps them there. So, so they've checked the box. They've mm -hmm. checked the box, and faith should be a part of it, every Roman Catholic would say, but isn't always a part of it. It's, they're just getting through the door. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so, so well, I'm just going to review here. So we've talked about magisterium and how, how theology gets done. We've talked about the pope. We've talked about this role that the church has as kind of a mediator standing between the believer and God. Again, in contrast to Protestantism in which there's the priesthood of all believers, there's direct access to God, direct access to God through Christ for a believer in Protestantism in a way that is pictured and expressed theologically that is distinct from the way the Roman Catholic Church is doing it. And, and so this difference in how ecclesiology is seen is a pretty important, significant mm -hmm. difference between the two traditions. Fair? Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And then, of course, we've got the role of the sacraments and, and the way in which uh, grace is said to be communicated uh, in a Roman Catholic context that's different from the way it's handled in Protestantism. Let's talk about a couple of other things that, that make for differences, um, some of which are, are famous or infamous, depending on how you look at them. And I want to I come to the idea of indulgences, because indulgences mm. really triggered in many ways, it's one of the things that triggered the Protestant Reformation. So let's talk about how indulgences function in the Roman Catholic Church and what the reaction was that actually was one of the catalysts for the Protestant Reformation. And I don't know who wants to take that one, but uh, but who wants to talk about well, indulgences? Well, indulgences, of course, grew from, in part, the, the doctrine of purgatory. Mm -hmm. And so uh, oh, good. purgatory That was another really one I wanted to talk yeah. about. Oh, all right. So that's well, I don't want to jump the gun I got on this. No, we got a twofer. This is great. All right. Okay. Well, purgatory is really not in the scriptures. Uh, some will try to base it in, what, 2 Corinthians 3, or 1 Corinthians 3, where the mm -hmm. foundation is it remains, but everything else is burned off. But the idea of purgatory grew with time, as even some Catholics who are critics of their own Catholic faith would say it sure looked good for filling the coffers to build the churches with. Hmm. Indulgences are your acts or payments to escape the punishment of every unworthy believer for entering heaven. It wasn't, didn't apply to non-believers, mm -hmm. at least initially in the history of the church. Rather, it was Christians, Catholic Christians, who must yet suffer because their lives were not worthy to go into heaven. Hmm. So indulgences and the business of indulgences grew immensely uh, to, to build the Roman Catholic Empire in many ways. So it comes alongside purgatory. Another, another uh, Catholic um, distinctive is the idea of confession, which is yes. part of this edifice of what we're talking about. How do I respond to sin after I've come to Christ? Is, is Almost the way we're we're thinking about these, and these are all related. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so there's this whole system of dealing with 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 sin in the Roman Catholic Church that's very distinct from the way Protestants tend to deal with it. So so go ahead. I'm, I, I interrupted you. Uh, go ahead and develop what happened with indulgences and what the reaction was. Well, it became so stark by the time of the Reformation. And here Mike's the expert, but uh, uh, as as Luther and others looked at Scripture and said, "Wait a minute." justification is by faith. It is a free gift of God by merit of what Christ has fully accomplished. The, he, he would argue that the Catholic Church, by these indulgences, is really saying that the work of Christ on the cross is insufficient for our full salvation. Believers yet have to pay in suffering in purgatory before they are allowed into heaven. There's a, there's a great uh, moment in Martin Luther's life as oh, he's I'm moving you're toward, mention this. I, think, toward, yeah, I don't I know, know if I got going. the same story, but, yeah. but he was visiting Rome, and one of the things that mm. you would do, it was almost like a... a, a, a indulgence obstacle course. You could go through various things and, and do some things to get time out of purgatory. And one of the famous ones, even to this day, I visited it myself, did not climb it, but the sacred steps yes, that Jesus Yes, you were in the same climbed. place. And Martin Luther climbed it uh, in order to buy one of his relatives out of purgatory, get some time there. And he gets to the top of the you thing. You crawl on your knees. Yeah, you exactly. Yeah. And you, there's prescribed mm -hmm. prayers that you say each time you uh, for each step you go there today the steps have almost indentions in all them over the centuries. all the they knees really do. over all the centuries yes um and i took the side steps because <laughs> i was a I protestant the escalator, i was a good I protestant <laughs> i didn't hit my knees at all okay <laughs> exactly so luther got up to the very top and he got his uh, little paper of indulgence and he looks down the stairs and sees all these people climbing and he has this thought in his head how do we know any of this is true 
How do we know this is true? You know, and it became, well, what is our authority for doctrine? What is our authority yeah. for this kind of thing? And he, mm -hmm. you know, where do you go? Well, he goes to the Bible, and there's no, there's no basis for this in Scripture. So this whole business of indulgences um, was one of the things that pushed Luther to uh, rethink the yeah. whole concept of salvation. You know, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, this is fair to say, the salvation is more of a process. It's a lifelong process. Mm -hmm. you're, you're involved in the process through participation mm -hmm. in the church and the sacraments. You can kind of get off the train, and eh, that's not good. You'll end up in purgatory. But if you keep on, you know, there is some sense of, of security, whereas in in the Protestant tradition, there is this sense of you are justified, a one-time experience of salvation, and then a, an outworking of spiritual growth. So there is a, uh, a more, more of a momentary conversion and salvation that is played out. There's a decisive moment. You know, yeah. yes. I mean, salvation is a process in Scripture, but mm -hmm. but how it plays out is very yeah. very different. It's not it's not something in the Roman Catholic churches. You almost have the sense of having to maintain it. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, but in Absolutely. Protestantism, it's it's there. You have it. You're sealed with the Spirit you until the consummation. It. And you yeah. exactly you call. There's still a process, and you mm -hmm. cultivate it, and you grow in it, and all those kinds of things. We call but, it sanctification. But you know, your so. status mm -hmm. is guaranteed Correct. from the very beginning, and so that that part of it is an important part of the conversation. You know, it's those steps are interesting. They're located, um, if I remember correctly, I think they're located near the church that is the um, the um, the seat for yeah, the Saint Roman John's. Saint John's yeah. Lateran, which is yeah, right. um, um, which is which is the primary church in Rome for the city of Rome. Yeah. It's not the Vatican, right. and uh, and it's, it it is a stunning um, location mm -hmm. to visit uh, just because of the history that's associated with it, in that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, this right this issue of, of purgatory and indulgences and these things that feed into the magisterium, if I can say it that way, raises another issue that, that comes alongside that's another difference, and that is uh, the books that count for being a part of Scripture. Okay, mm -hmm. um, one of the things that happened with purgatory, at least that I'm aware of, in working in New Testament studies, because we work with intertestamental, what we call intertestamental mm -hmm. literature or Second Temple literature, the the Jewish material that's written between the testaments, is that in Roman Catholicism, those books, which are known as the Apocrypha to many Protestants, are called are sometimes called the Deuterocanonicals, the second level of the canon, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and so these books do have some teaching and doctrines that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture, didn't have, mm -hmm. and that Catholics did draw upon to make some of the theological moves that mm -hmm. they did, purgatory being perhaps the, one of the more outstanding examples. And so you have this additional layer of Scripture. And I often get asked the question, what are what are those other extra books? You know, what what's going on there? And so, how does that fit into the scheme of things? And when did those books come to be recognized as part of the Catholic Bible? Which I think is an interesting part of the story as well. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, as you know, these books were floating around in the intertestamental period for the most part. Um, they were part of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the mm -hmm. Hebrew Scriptures, uh, not part of the Hebrew texts that the, that the Jews were using. So this already in the early church, there was some debate or question about how much should we use these things. 
it was universally acknowledged that these are helpful books. Absolutely. They're, they're yep. inspirational, yep. I like to say, not inspired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, in fact, Martin Luther had them translated and he he provided introductions for them and, and valued mm -hmm. them as being good Christian literature, but not canonical, not as, as a basis for uh, theology. You know, and, and it's interesting, yeah, there are a few passages that you, if you already hold the doctrine of purgatory, mm -hmm. you could go to those passages and gain more support. See, there's something but, there. Yes. But <laughs> you could never really build the doctrine of purgatory from those few passages any mm -hmm, more than mm -hmm. you could from the rich man and Lazarus or uh, 1 Corinthians 3. That's It's more of a, a doctrine in search of a text. So I would say even if those doctrine, those books were in the Protestant Bible, um, we would not be Roman Catholic, right? So they're not you know, the, the key to becoming Roman Catholic. Uh, those things were added officially, though, as they, they did float around in the background for a while um, through the centuries. They were added officially only after the Reformation mm -hmm. as part of the Counter-Reformation, the mm -hmm. Council of Trent in the uh, mm -hmm. 1540s. So yet another example of how the development of theology Correct. as it operates in the Catholic Church yes. has incorporated things to round out the basis for what's for what's mm -hmm. being claimed. Well, we've really walked through a whole series of distinctions between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. I'm going to ask you a horrible question with a couple of minutes left, and that is, if you were to summarize kind of what you think the key difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, and you could put it in a paragraph or so, um, what would what would that be? I'll let you each get a crack at that question. Yeah, I would say uh, the key difference is Roman Catholicism is always um, Christianity plus. And so it's grace plus something else, faith plus works. It's the work of Christ plus the intercession of Mary and the saints. It's um, the, the canonical books plus the Apocrypha. It seems like there's additions. So the, the problem is not that they're denying the Trinity and the, the deity and humanity of Christ in the center of orthodoxy. It's just that they are dogmatically adding layers to that that become very distracting from the purity of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Scott? Yeah, I would say it is the source of authority, finally. Is it the Bible itself that then is the judge of all tradition, or is it vice versa? That's number one. Number two is that's that, that source of authority coming down through, coming down through Peter, or really through Mary, who's now the queen of heaven as this ascended one. That's a good example of doctrine that has built on itself without any real... To the point uh, where the addition almost oh, takes absolutely. a, a top great, role yeah. and layer that it didn't previously ever She's have. She's the co-mediatrix. She's mm -hmm. the co-redeemer with Christ, the new Eve, mm -hmm. as Christ is the last Adam. And so you have both that parallel track, which really, especially outside of North America and Europe, really dominates uh, Catholicism as I've seen it in different parts of the world. So Mary becomes a chief mediator, uh, almost supplanting the place of Christ, though a good Catholic would say, no, but it's through Mary, Christ works. Ooh, we're running out of time. You know, the, one of the things that you've raised here at the end that people do need to be aware of is, is that Catholicism does have a little bit of a different character depending on where you are That's in right. the world in terms sure, of what absolutely. gets emphasized. And so to think of Catholicism as kind of this mm -hmm. huge monolithic thing, mm -hmm. it actually is a conglomeration of a variety of expressions, yeah. yep. but the, what they share is this this additional element that reflects the development of theology in the way its theological means are, are structured. And uh, you've got a book there called The Catechism of the Catholic Church that does a, a good job of letting Catholics speak for themselves. Well, this uh, 
46 minutes has flown by, and I want to thank you all for taking the time to come in and talk with us about the difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants. It's a fascinating discussion, and I'm sure we'll have you back to talk more about these kinds of theological issues. We thank you for being a part of the table and hope you'll be back again with us soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.